Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Palestinian writer and academic Leila Farsak about the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict, the parallels Leila sees between the current situation and the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and we also talked about the revival of the idea of the one-state solution and why Leila believes a two-state resolution to the conflict is no longer feasible. In the interview, we touch on Leila's article in the London Review of Books titled The Refugee Problem, and on her book, Rethinking Statehood in Palestine, Self-Determination Beyond Partition. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Late Fascism, Race Capitalism and the Politics of Crisis by Alberto Toscano. In a world shaken by ecological, economic and political crises, the forces of authoritarianism and reaction seem to have the upper hand. How should we name, map and respond to this state of affairs? In his new book, Late Fascism, Alberto Toscano makes clear the limits of associating fascism primarily with the kind of political violence experienced by past European regimes. Drawing on black radical and anti-colonial theories of fascism, Toscano outlines why we should see fascism as a mutable process, one anchored in racial and colonial capitalism. Late Fascism, Race, Capitalism and the Politics of Crisis by Alberto Toscano is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Leila Farsak is Associate Professor and Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She's the author of Palestinian Labor Migration to Israel, Labor, Land and Occupation, and of Rethinking Statehood in Palestine, Self-Determination Beyond Partition. In your recent article for the London Review of Books, on Hamas's attacks on October 7th and Israel's subsequent assault on the Gaza Strip. You wrote that, I can't help looking for parallels in the many wars that have taken place since Israel was created in 1948. The 1973 Yom Kippur War is the obvious one, not only because the Hamas offensive took place on its 50th anniversary, but because Israeli officials invoked it and Joe Biden alluded to it when he pledged unequivocal support for Israel's fight against quote-unquote evil. That war was a watershed in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Could you talk a bit about the background to the Yom Kippur War of 1973, in which, as you described there, Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur in order to force Israel to negotiate the return of the territories it had captured in 1967 during the so-called Six-Day War? The 1973 war... It was launched, as you precisely said, because of the war of 1967, the Six-Day War in which Israel, within six days, captured the West, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, and Sinai. And in, with this, making the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that started in '48 between Palestinians and Israelis, it became an Arab-Israeli conflict insofar now as Arab states had lost land to Israel, namely Egypt lost Sinai, and Syria lost the Golan Heights. And Jordan, one could argue, did it lose the West Bank? The Palestinians have always contested Jordan's claim over the West Bank. But in 1950, Jordan claimed control over the West Bank uh, and as a representative of the population there, and also as the protector of East Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the holy sites, the Muslim holy sites in, in, in East Jerusalem. So the importance of the 73 war, in Arabic, the term is, uh, it, it proved to be not a liberation war, but a war to improve the bargaining positions of Arab states in their negotiation with Israel. And why is that? Because the war of 1967, which was an incredible success of Israel, as you can understand and imagine, it proved that Israel is not only here to stay, but Israel is also a powerful state, militarily very advanced, it uh, inflicted on the Egyptian army when Egypt is a much bigger country, an older army. It inflicted incredible damage just within the first few hours of the war, smashing and shattering the role of Egypt as a central country in the Middle East. So this, on the one hand, incredible image of Israel as an invincible that happened after 67 and the incredible blow to Arab nationalism and Arab unity as a way to liberate Palestine. 
put the Arab countries in a big uh, problem, a problem of legitimacy, problem of survival. And also at the same time, we had the fact that the Security Council, for the first time in this conflict, Arab-Israeli conflict, produced a very important resolution, which is UN Resolution 242 in November 67. And this resolution, because it's from the Security Council, so it has more power, if you want, than UN resolutions uh, that preceded it. UN Resolution 242, Security Council Resolution 242, is very important because it set the parameters of what are the terms of peace in the region. And it specifies three very important things. First, it specifies that acquisition of land by war is inadmissible. It says clearly there, inadmissibility of land acquisition by war. And calls on Israel to retreat from land it occupied in the recent conflict, i.e. the 1967 war, in exchange for receiving recognition of its right to exist. The resolution says the first item is calling on Israel to retreat from land it occupied. Second item says the right of every state in the region to live in secure border and uh, with sovereignty and have their sovereignty recognized. So this is the land for peace formula. Exactly. Okay. Also, and if you mention that resolution, Israel's name is not mentioned. No state is mentioned's name. But it is implicit is that if you want peace in the region, Israel gives back some land. In exchange, it receives recognition. And it's important to remember that this resolution is talking to states. It doesn't talk about people. It doesn't talk about individuals. The third item, which often people forget it, is the item in which it calls for a just solution to the refugee problem. So this UN resolution that, that defines the terms of peace in the region ever since the 1967 war says that peace happens between states. Israel has to return land in exchange for recognition, does not mention the Palestinian by name, does not mention any of the UN resolution that preceded it, 181, which is the partition plan, or 194, which is the right of return resolution, and just calls for a just solution to the refugee problem, which means it basically, one could argue, it obliterated the presence of a Palestinian problem, a Palestinian question, did not acknowledge its existence. Uh, the Palestinian quest to freedom, to their, to go back to the land, which UN Resolution 194 protected, uh, their claim to a state, which UN Resolution 181 enshrined, all these are not mentioned. So this was important and problematic from a Palestinian point of view. From an Arab point of view, they saw that there is a possibility to get their land back. But the 73 war was important because it was a way by which the Arab countries were trying to improve their bargaining positions when they sit down with Israel. Because after the major defeat of 67, they had, the Arab League had a meeting in Khartoum in, in August 67, in which it said the famous three no's, no to Israel, no to negotiation, no to peace, okay? Which was just an attempt to keep face more than anything else. Uh, with the 73 war, two things were achieved from the Arab point of view. One, they were able to, to shake the image of Israel as invincible because they surprised it. Uh, they managed to cross to the canal. Of course, uh, the U.S. gave an incredible airlift which helped Israel to counter the attack. But also it showed that the United States, at the time we still were living in a bipolar world with the US, Soviet Union and the, US, and the USA as the two powerful regions, we managed within two weeks of the war, the war starts on the 6th of October. By the 22nd of October, we have a new UN Security Council resolution, which is 338, that calls for immediate cessation of hostilities, right? And for direct negotiations and the application of UN Resolution 242. And indeed, the war stops on October 24th. It was also a turning point because we saw the first time that the Arab countries used some leverage when we saw the Arab oil embargo that was imposed as a way as well to improve the Arab bargaining positions in order to end or find a solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And indeed, we, we, what is amazing, if you think about it, like the parallels are, or the contrast couldn't be more glaring, the U.S. and the USSR managed to call the parties to the Geneva multilateral negotiations peace conference in December. At the time, Egypt goes and Israel 
and Jordan, because Jordan has the West Bank, right? But Syria refuses to go. And one of the reasons why Syria refused to go, arguing that, first of all, because it lost more land in the Golan Heights, but also because it said that the PLO is not being represented. And the inclusion of the PLO was something at the time not clear because insofar as Israel was concerned and the U.S. is concerned, the PLO was a terrorist organization and it's not going to talk or negotiate with it. But the question of the Palestinian, what is the place of the Palestinian in any peace negotiations? Can they be dismissed and ignored or are they central to any peace with Israel? At the time was still being debated. Israel had made it clear, no, there is no such thing as Palestinians. These are Arabs. Their fate is to be resolved with Jordan. The Palestinians were saying, no, Jordan does not speak for us. And we are not a bunch of refugees in need of a humanitarian solution. We are a people with a right to self-determination. And this policy of the PLO that it pushed from 1968 to 73 and 74 gets an international legitimacy in 74. First, because the Arab League votes in 1974 to recognize the PLO as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. And with this, you have the first Arab endorsement of the fact that Jordan does not speak for the Palestinians. Jordan does not represent the Palestinians, although that is what Israel wanted. So 1974, this Arab League meeting in Rabat was very important because it affirms that only the PLO speaks for the Palestinians. And then Arafat, the PLO, is invited to the UN a month after that, on November 13th, 1974, to speak at the UN. And that's when the PLO gets an observer status in 1974, in a sense meaning that it has international recognition and legitimacy, at least insofar as the global south is concerned, as well as other countries. So that's the importance of 73, because 73 provides the vehicle for implementing UN Resolution 242, because it improves a little bit the Arab negotiation leverage, if you want. It affirms the role of the U.S. as the most important mediator that can bring things to fruition. And if you think about it, just four years after 1973, you have the president of Egypt, Sadat, visit Israel, and you have the Camp David peace deal in 1978 and 1979. They are very important because, again, every peace deal since then, since 78, was based on UN Resolution 242. In other words, recognizing Israel for exchange of land. And also those subsequent negotiations, it's always in a bilateral format, right, rather than multilateral. Exactly, yes, yes. That's the intervention of the U.S. and the role of Kissinger is very important because in principle 242 did not specify it's going to be bilateral negotiation or multilateral. It was left open. And the Arab position also in Geneva was we should have a multilateral position of negotiation. Kissinger was very important to break this idea and institute what he called a step-by-step diplomacy. So we start with disengaging Syrian and Israeli forces along the Golan Heights, Egyptian and, and uh, Israeli forces along the Sinai. And from this bilateral step-by-step diplomacy, you can lead to Camp David, which happened in 1978. And again, 78 is very, Camp David is very important because Camp David sets the framework for peace in the region in general. And it sets it again on, on the basis of 242. In other words, it's peace between two states. Egypt pushed that we need to take into consideration the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. So it sets that the, that the beginning of the conflict is the 1967 war, not the 1948 war. That's another important element in that resolution and in Camp David in 78. And the Camp David framework leads to the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt in 1979. People often confuse the two together. And from there, we go to Oslo. From there, we go to the peace deal between Jordan and and Israel in 1995. Going back to the parallels you see between what occurred on October 7th and the 1973 war, could you talk a little bit about that, about the way you see that just as Egypt and Syria had sought to append the status quo anti, Hamas too was aiming to uh, very much change the situation in the region. So if somebody would ask me what are the major changes or the watershed moment that 73 bro- war of 1973 brought about, okay, it allowed us to implement 242. It also is the last war 
conventional war in the region between states, between state armies. Every war that follows after 1973 is between one state and militias. Whether it is we have now the explosion of the um, civil war in Lebanon, and as many historians have discussed and proved, the, one of the reasons why the war in Lebanon, civil war in Lebanon lasted for so long is because also it became like a regional war between Israel and Syria fought, and the PLO fought over Lebanese land. Then we have the war of Israel against Lebanon in 78 and 82, in 82 to eliminate the PLO. So we go from war between states to war between a state and a military group, if you want. Okay, so that's one. Secondly, the terms of peace is two for two. And thirdly, U.S. is your only mediator, right? So October 7th comes on the heel of actually 30 years of Oslo peace process. In September, we had the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Principles between the PLO and the State of Israel, which set the parameter for the Oslo peace process, which was a peace that was based, it's based on two agreements. One is called the Declaration of Principles, the other one called the Interim Agreement. But the essence of Oslo's were two major points, if you want. One, it was trading recognition between Israel and the PLO. And this is major. You know, many people fault Oslo for many, and there's a lot to be fought in Oslo. <laughs> but bear in mind that famous handshake on the White House lawn when Arafat gave speech and also Rabin, Prime Minister of Israel at the time, gave his speech, was very important because from the Palestinian side, it was the second time that the Palestinian officials and representatives recognized Israel. The first time was in 88 when Arafat recognized Israel, renounced terrorism, and made a declaration of independence, which meant that the PLO gave up its project, which it declared in 1971, that the aim of the PLO was to liberate Palestine and establish a democratic state in all of Palestine, inclusive of Jews, Muslims, and Christians. By 1988, the PLO gave up de facto that plan by recognizing Israel and recognizing UN Resolution 242 because that UN resolution declared the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza illegal, but not what is before that, okay? And Arafat repeats this recognition in Oslo in the, at the White House loan. But Israel, up until 1993, refused the recognition of the Palestinian people. They always talked about these, these people who live in the West Bank and Gaza who are not Jewish, they are Arabs. Their destiny is to be settled with Jordan. But in Oslo, you have now the first official Zionist recognition that there is something called Palestinians, that there is something called the PLO that represents them. And also, in the famous word of Rabin, in his speech, he says, we have to share this land together with the Palestinians. Now, what land he meant, he probably meant the West Bank. The Palestinians understood Palestine, okay? But still, it's very important because Israel basically recognized that this land was never empty. This land always had Palestinians, okay? The Palestinians cannot it tried Israel so many times to eliminate them, to liquidate them, to dilute them, to diffuse them and make them just Arabs, not Palestinians. This, by 1973, Israel recognizes it's not possible. I have to recognize the Palestinian. I recognize the Palestinian. And I recognize them by saying that they are those who live in the West Bank and Gaza. The second element of Oslo, the Palestinian understood it that that will prepare the stage for reaching a final deal with Israel that ends the conflict between Palestinian Israelis. But what transpired as actually, especially after the killing of Rabin in 1995 by an Israeli settler, is that Israel used Oslo not to undo its colonial structure in the West Bank and Gaza, not to reduce its domination in the West Bank and Gaza, but rather to redefine its colonial structure of domination in the West Bank and Gaza. And how? By giving the Palestinian functional jurisdiction and keeping Israel in control of the land. And I think that's what Hamas and October 7th was about, was trying to say, this status quo can no longer last. This idea that Israel can take more and more land during the peace process, kill more and more Palestinians during the peace process, have a Palestinian authority, which is actually just has uh, autonomy, no sovereignty, and fragmenting the West Bank and Gaza into Bantu stands because of the way also cut the West Bank and Gaza into area A, B, and C. 
allow the expansion of settlements. Like, bear in mind, the number of settlers during the peace process between 1993 and 2023 more than tripled than in the years before. You had half a million settlers moved to the West Bank and East Jerusalem between 1993 and, and 2023. Extraordinary display of bad faith, right? Exactly. And also a way of saying that you're destroying a possibility of a Palestinian state, not enabling the possibility of a Palestinian state. By you expanding settlements, by you taking more land, by you keeping 60% of the land in the West Bank under full Israeli control, by you preventing Palestinian authority in area A and B, which is only 42% of the West Bank, only functional jurisdiction, but no territorial jurisdiction, by you putting Gaza under siege for 16 years, you, Israel, thought it, it solved the problem. People know who are the Palestinians, but we diluted the Palestinian question because they have these little Bantu stands, they have some hotels, they have some economy. If they don't behave well, we turn them into Gaza, right? This is what October 7th, what Hamas tried in October 7th to see. This is not sustainable anymore. It doesn't work for the Palestinians, okay? And it's costly to the Israelis. And that's exactly what we saw on October 7th that the politics of containing 2.1 million Palestinians behind one of the worst sieges that we know in modern time, which a number of human rights organizations called an open-air prison, is dangerous to Israelis, not just to Palestinians. What many people have been saying, I mean, it's been 20 years, scholars, academics, activists, anybody who visits the West Bank or tries to get to the Gaza Strip, tells you what is over there is an apartheid, okay? Apartheid in the sense that you have Palestinian population reserves out of which they cannot exit without a permit issued by Israel. You have checkpoints that cut the West Bank into nine major population reserves, if you want, while the Jordan Valley is under full Israeli control and the Gaza Strip is another Bantustan. So, this, uh, not, not to talk about Hebron, which is a microcosm of the conflict, is a city which of, of uh, 350,000 Palestinians with 1,000 settlers in the middle of the city, enabling the city to survive, okay, or be sustainable. So I think what happened is the tragedy for Israel, I believe, is that instead of its leaders having used the peace process to decolonize and leave the West Bank, Israel used it to expand its presence in the West Bank. It tried to get rid of Gaza by retreating from Gaza and keeping it under siege, but this did not end its occupation of, of the Gaza Strip over the past 16 years. So the tragedy is that they killed the two-state solution and they thought the apartheid structure, which is now there, no, we're not going to call it apartheid because we have something called the Palestinian state recognized by everybody. So. The language, the narrative is that we have a two-state solution, but the reality on the ground, we have an apartheid reality. One in which Israel is the only sovereign state between the river and the sea. The state of Israel is in control of 14 million people. Seven million of those are Israeli Jews who have rights, who have citizenships, who are free to move wherever they want. And another seven are Palestinians who are cut uh, and under different forms of juridical and political control. You have two million who are citizens of Israel. They have passports, they have rights, but are discriminated against within the democratic ethnocracy of Israel. You have 2.3 million in the West Bank. They have autonomy, but no sovereignty. You have 300,000 and 350,000 in East Jerusalem that are residents of Israel, have a little bit more right than the West Bankers, but are not citizens of Israel and completely cut from the West Bank, although East Jerusalem used to be the heart of the West Bank before Oslo. And then you have another 2.2 million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip under one of the most egregious sieges that we know with poverty rate before October 7th, already at 47% and poverty rate at 80%. So I think what October 7th did is show that this reality of apartheid is unsustainable for any peace and also is very dangerous to Israelis because it did not provide them with security. 
You've already touched it on it a little bit, but going back to 1971 and, and the PLO's declared objective at, at that point of a democratic state in Palestine that would be inclusive of Muslims, Jews and, and Christians. Could you talk a bit about their vision of a one-state solution at the time and also about the history of the idea in historic Palestine, one that had been taken up not just by Palestinians and citizens of the Arab states, but also by a fringe of the Zionist movement, even if it was never a position that held a great deal of traction in the Zionist mainstream? Yeah, thank you very much for this question. It's a very important. The idea of a binational state or of that Palestine can only be one state that includes uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, that includes immigrants and residents, is an old idea and actually started with the mandate. The British mandate is true, incorporated the Belfort Declaration, and the Belfort Declaration, you know, which was egregious from a Palestinian point of view, because it did not recognize the political rights of Palestinians or the non-Jewish community, as it said. It did talk about a Jewish national home in Palestine. It's very important to, to think about that because it didn't say state. It's state about national home. And national home can be many things. It can be autonomy. It can be sovereignty. It can be, you know, it, it, you have enough maneuver to interpret in different ways. And when Britain conquered Palestine in December 1917, and then the mandate incorporated the Belfort Declaration and gave the British a responsibility to establish a modern state in Palestine, okay, which is with the borders as we know it today, right? The, the British, the first eight years, tried to create, you know, they created something called the Palestinian nationality, Palestinian citizenship. They tried also to create a parliament, a representative body that included Zionist and non-Zionist Palestinian, okay? There was lots of debate, but it it dealt with Palestine as a single state in which in it, it tried to accommodate Zionist aspiration and Palestinian aspiration. It gave up on this idea only after the rise of 1929 and after the Arab strike of 1936, uh, when the famous Peel Commission came along in 1937, which, which introduced the first idea that the only solution to Zionist and Palestinian claim over Palestine is division. But this idea, again, even among Zionists in the 1920s, if you read Zionist writings in the 1920s, they were still talking about the form of a binational state. They were not outspoken about a Jewish state. They became outspoken about a Jewish state, although they already intended it before, don't get me wrong, but the labor movement starts talking clearly about a, the importance of having a small but majority dominant Jewish state by uh, 1930, 1929, okay? So, but you have something called the Brit Shalom movement, which had important uh, Zionist thinkers, what we call humanist Zionists, people like Martin Buber, Yudha Magnus, who was the founder of the Hebrew University, who believed that the only solution possible in Palestine, already in the 30s and in the, in, in the 30s and 40s, was a binational state. And here I have to say something that Yudha Magnus used to say, that the Jewish people always existed. You know, they don't need a state, a Jewish state to exist. His point was creating a purely Jewish state in Palestine will be destructive to the Jewish people because it, it will be unjust. It will be built through war, which is bad for Jews in general. And it takes away legitimacy of the Jewish cause to want to have a nation. Okay. So that the Jewish Zionist idea of a, of a one state in Palestine was always a binational state because of this attachment to the idea that, you know, we want to speak our language, we can do something like Switzerland. They imagined something like Switzerland or Belgium, okay? And although they were marginal, you have to bear in mind that actually when the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine was created in 1947 to go to Palestine and provide a solution, they met with Yudha Magnus and Martin Buber, you know? They met with Brit Shalom, uh, people who were advocating for a binational state. So it was not an idea the international community or the, or the people on the ground were alien to. The Zionist uh, labor and revisionists were completely opposed to it. Now, where do we find this idea again coming up? We, we find it coming up in the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. This committee was created by the UN to look into the conflict and come up with a recommendation when the US and Britain just proposed various Proposals and nobody accepted it, okay? Now, this is a very important committee because it was made of 11 judges. And they came to represent 
uh, various continents. So these judges, were, the condition was that they should not include any representative of any party implicated in the conflict. So no British representative, no Arab representative, uh, no US. So it actually was fascinating if you look at it because it had two judges from Latin America, two from um, Eastern Europe, two from Western Europe, uh, Canada, Australia, and then India and Iran as representatives from Asia. And what's fascinating with this committee when they deliberated, they came up with two reports. One was called the Majority Report, which was signed off by seven judges. And one is called the Minority Report, which was signed off by three judges. And one abstained. And the Minority Report, what was fascinating about it, which, which were supported by the representative from Yugoslavia, Iran, and India. They argued that the only solution is a binational state in Palestine. And the reason for that, they said, is that if you looked at Palestine in 1947, the Zionists only controlled 7% of the land and represented about 33% of the population. And they were not, these 33% Zionists were not concentrated in one area. There was no city apart from Jaffa and Tel Aviv where they were above than 50% of the population. So they said, any partition, how can you make it work? Because it's going to lead to displacement. Now, the majority report argued, no, the the seven other judges said, look, these people don't want to live together. The only solution is partition. This is why we partition Palestine into two states. But it being clearly understood, the partition plan that they proposed, which gave the Jewish side much more land, they gave it 56% of historic Palestine, they argued that the population cannot be displaced in these respective states. So in other words, Jews that end up in a Palestinian state or an Arab state cannot be expelled to go to the Jewish state. And Palestinians or Arabs who live in the Jewish state cannot be expelled from the Jewish state. That was central to the partition plan. As you know, partition plan was voted on. It passed two-thirds majority at the time. The UN was mainly, you know, Western or did not have the whole decolonized world, right? It was a majority. So it passed, but it's important to remember the uh, stipulation that it was based, and you can have a two-state solution, but neither state can expel the population under their control. So we know this is not what happened. Israel expelled, you know, uh, two-thirds of the Palestinian population under its control in order to create a Jewish state. It did not stick to the 56% that the UN partition plan gave it. It established on 78% of Palestine. Now, the third time we see this idea of a single state in all of Palestine, so we see it first with the British mandate, second with the British Shalom, third with the UN uh, UNSCOP minority support, and fourth time we see it with the Palestinian plan, in 1971, where the PLO declares its goal, the establishment of a democratic state in Palestine. It does not go for a binational state. It it calls for a democratic state in which Jews, Muslims, and Christians live together in peace. And why it does not call for a binational state? Because the view of, if you read the, the intellectual promoter of the idea that was then adopted by the PLO, argued that the Jews are not a national group. They are a religious community. There is something called the Arab Jew. There is something called African Jew. They cannot be all be put together as Zionist claims that all the Jews represent one and single nation and Israel speaks for them. So it wanted to emphasize the Arab character of Palestine and in which the Jews were always a central part, just as the Arab Jews were central to Iraq, to Egypt, to Yemen to Tunisia, to Morocco, Jews were always part of the Arab world, okay, and they identified themselves as Arab Jews. Zionism kills this category and argues there is no such thing as an Arab Jew. You are just Israeli, uh, Zionist, and Israel speaks for all the Jews. And tries to sort of Europeanize the Jewish population as well, right? Exactly, exactly. So the reason why this idea was abandoned by the PLO is because, and many people faulted Arafat, when he insinuated, look, guys, I love this idea, but guess what? The international community, the international verdict since 1947 is a two-state solution, not a one-state. So let's be politically pragmatic 
and let's establish a state on whatever part of Palestine, and then we could liberate all of Palestine or not. What is important that the PLO abandons this idea of a single democratic state in 1988, as I explained to you on November 15, when the PLO recognizes Israel, renounces terrorism, acknowledges 242, and it's important to bear in mind that it was a major concession of the PLO to recognize 242 as a base for peace. Because as I explained earlier, 242 negated, does not mention the Palestinian by name. But the PLO said, okay, I'll do this historic compromise. Let's have a state on the West Bank and Gaza rather than no state at all. Because if we have a state, we have rights. We go back to Hannah Arendt's argument. You know, you need to have a state to be recognized as having rights, right? But the state, if you make it a nation state rather than a democratic state, risks to exclude those who don't belong to the nation. But given that the 20th century is the century in which this is a century of ending empires to create nation states and nation states are what create the international system we live in, are those who are members of the UN is the only way how you can have rights, citizenship rights. That's what the PLO decided to go for. And I think the tragedy of the moment, or maybe the lesson of the moment, is that after 35 years that the Palestinians accepted Israel's existence, after accepted that what they got in the West Bank and Gaza, or tried to accept, is actually uh, governance, not sovereignty, have tried to give every compromise with Israel. Okay, And according to many Palestinians, they even accepted to capitulate to Israel. Despite all this, <laughs> the Palestinians, what could they say? is like, look, guys, we tried the two-state solution. We were willing to make so much compromise. And what happens? We got little. We got nothing. Or you could argue what they got is we tried the two-state solution. Israel destroyed it. We are in 2023 now in a reality in which Israel is the only sovereign from the river to the sea. And it is in control of 14 million people, seven of whom has rights, and the other sevens uh, do not have full equal rights. So can we now start talking about a one state, a democratic state, a binational state? That's the challenge. Going back to Hamas for a moment. Mm -hmm. So in the London Review of Books article, you wrote that even Hamas has de facto accepted the two-state solution. Could you say something on that? Because obviously that very much contradicts the way Hamas is usually portrayed, which is typically as being uh, totally implacable in its opposition to Israel's existence. So Hamas is a pragmatic political party. In 2007, it made it clear that it is willing to accept a two-state solution as a truce. Okay, this is why many people say, you see, it's not really sincere about it. Sure. <laughs> But Hamas said, yeah, I'm willing to accept the two-state solution. It entered the elections in 2006. Hamas entering the Palestinian legislative elections in 2006 was a way of admitting that it accepts Oslo, even if it officially did not recognize Oslo, right? But it also made it clear that it is willing to accept a two-state solution. It's willing to have a national unity government and Netanyahu's government has sabotaged every attempt of that. So Hamas's approach is very pragmatic. It's like the PLO in the 1970s. Because in the 1970s, also many people told to Arafat and the PLO, you have to recognize Israel. But this is politics. So Palestinian side, why, why should I recognize Israel before I get something back from Israel? It's not a coincidence, for example, that the PLO recognizes Israel in 1988. Because in 1988, I mean, think about it. In 1982, Israel invades Lebanon to eliminate the PLO. It was one of, for me, for, you know, it one was one of the worst wars the Palestinians experienced since the Nakba, 1982. Israel put Beirut under siege for 88 days. The citizens of Beirut were without water and electricity. And then the PLO is expelled out of Beirut, right? Uh, because it was a terrorist organization. This is to Tunis. To Tunis, exactly. So could you imagine how far away, okay? And, you know, Israel would have thought, okay, I finished the Palestinian problem. There's no such thing as Palestinians. PRO is a terrorist organization. We eliminated them. They are dispersed all over the Arab world. All done, right? But we have the Palestinian uprising in the West Bank in 1987, where Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza who have lived 20 years under Israeli occupation, who saw their per capita income 
double in 20 years of occupation because Israel allows them to work inside Israeli firms and companies and build homes, right? Despite the economic pacification of the Palestinians of the West Bank, in 1987, they rise in Gaza when a bunch of you know, Gaza workers come back from their work and they're being shot at at a, at a, at a point and then there's a, the, the uprising. The uprising in the West Bank in Gaza in 1987, which was mainly uh, civil disobedience, uh, boycott of Israeli goods, um, throwing rocks at uh, soldiers and th- soldiers shooting back at Palestinian kids, catapulted the Palestinian cause back into center stage, despite after the failure, or after the, the loss of, of Beirut and the PLO, right? And recentered the Palestinian question as the Palestinians, no matter where they are, whether outside Palestine or inside Palestine, want liberation, want equality, want to live, right? And this is when Arafat decided to use this moment of success, if you want, of, again, <laughs> recalibrating the PLO that seemed to be marginal now. You had kids in the West Bank and Gaza. The famous slogan at the time was, PLO Israel, no. <laughs> Israel had tried to argue, no, the West Bank and Gaza, they are Jordanians, that this is with Jordan. We're in the street saying, no, the PLO represents us. Okay, And King Jordan at the time in, in August 88 disengages. He said, I don't represent the Palestinian. And Arafat makes a declaration of, of, of uh, the Palestinian state. So I think what you have to bear in mind is at, at what point should Hamas recognize Israel? Because Hamas is saying, look, we have the PLO recognize Israel. What did it get from this recognition? More oppression, more fragmentation, more dilution, more marginalization. Okay. It did not give us a two-state solution. So why should I recognize now Israel? I mean, it should be something else. I mean, I'll, I'll recognize Israel if Israel ends its war on, on the Palestinians, if Israel retreats from the West Bank and Gaza, if Israel, you know. But this is where we are. So it's... It, and I, th- I think from a political point of view, you can understand it, no? I mean, you cannot, you, you don't need to approve its methods. You don't need to agree with, with its, its violation and cr- war crimes. But from a political point of view, its position can make sense because it's going to leverage its power to say, at what point will I recognize you? And what does recognizing Israel mean? Because also Israel moved over time in how it wanted to be recognized. In 1988 and 1973, it just recognizes Israel to try to exist full stop. 15 years later, Netanyahu started saying, no, you have to recognize me as a Jewish state. Why do I have to recognize you as a Jewish state? You know, it's not the job. Each state defines itself as it wish itself to be, right? It doesn't need the recognition of the other to be who it is. And that would also be abandoning the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel. Exactly, exactly. So we go back then, you see, to the logic of what, what is the role of a state, right? The, the state's responsibility is to defend its citizens, right? Especially if it is a democratic state. Right now, we are in a situation whereby how can a state that was created to provide a safe haven for the Jews be also a colonial state that dispossesses others of their rights? This is what Israel is. And the question now is how will Israel adapt or does what Israel wants to adapt? Because it's not about elimination of the Israeli people, as far as Hamas is concerned. It's more about elimination of a settler colonial state that negates the natives' their rights. Since the decline of the Oslo process, which, which you've described, there's been a tremendous resurgence of interest and, and advocacy of the one-state solution amongst Palestinians, whether a binational state or, or some other formulation. But in the current circumstances, although that solution may be the most optimal and, and the most just, it seems exceptionally hard to imagine how it could come about. I realize it's you know it's a it's a hard and and very speculative question, but what route, if any, do you see towards uh, such an outcome today in the midst of Israel's genocidal attack on on Gaza? Well, this is why we are in a historical moment like never before, and this is why it can be a watershed moment just like the nineteen seventy three war was. You know, who would have thought in nineteen seventy three that you would have had a peace deal with between Egypt and um, uh, between Egypt and Israel just five years after the nineteen seventy three war, and yet you did. Right? I mean, who would have thought after the destruction of the PLO in 1982 that the PLO and Israel shake hands and make peace just 10 years after that or 11 years after that, which is in 1993? So I think what is important to bear in mind is over the past 20 years, since the eruption of the Second Intifada, when it became clear 
that Israel was not interested in peace with the Palestinians, was, in, was interested in having the Palestinians capitulate and accept a Bantustan as a state. At the popular level and at the activist level, people started saying, many Palestinians saying, look, this is apartheid, this is not, this is not a two-state solution. I mean, I wrote an article in, in 2005 explaining how Israel, who never wanted to create an apartheid reality, actually did create an apartheid reality with its checkpoint policy, which is with, with its territorial fragmentation of the West Bank policy, with the settler movement. Okay, so if you say you are in an apartheid reality, the only solution to it is either more oppression or a one-state democratic reality, right? So what we have today is on the ground, we have a reality of apartheid. And I think the one, one of the things that gave it most impetus, this paradigm, has been uh, the various human rights reports, whether it is Salem, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, all of that said this is an apartheid reality. That, you know, and of course, again, again, I tell you, Israel might not have wanted to create an apartheid reality because Israel has always been interested in taking the land without the people. But the fact of the matter is that after 75 years of Israel's existence, it could not get rid of the people while taking the land. And the way it tried to solve the problem of Palestinian presence is in putting them in Bantustans. This is no longer working. Or maybe Israel would try to make it work. I mean, I don't know, with a genocidal policy. I mean, the two alternatives now is either genocide or a one-state reality. What is difficult is that we have various political parties that talk about a one-state, but they don't have political weight. And the reason for that is because we don't have the PLO now coming up and say, or the PA saying, I want a one-state solution, okay? And what would that entail? And you don't have somebody on the Israeli side saying, you know what, we, are, we have been colonialists, like in South Africa, for example, and say, now stop, we have, like, how are we going to move from Bota to the clerk, right? From Netanyahu to somebody says, okay, you know what, we need to live with these people, and let's make a deal that is to our best advantage in a one-state reality. Because this requires both the Palestinians and the Israeli to face their fear, to face, to face their pain, to face their losses, and think of an alternative, right? And that requires courage, but requires also structure. And what comes against us a little bit in this regard is the fact that the international consensus has still remained within the two-state solution. And that why it's, people still talk about it, although people are aware that it is already over. So you're waiting to have maybe both, you need domestic forces calling for a one state and elaborating what a one state means with regards to what you'll do with the rights of Palestinians and Israelis living there. I think many Palestinians will tell you, who think about a one state, will tell you that a one state, a democratic state, will mean that all those who live on the land can live on the land so long as they are equal and not someone having privilege over the others. So a one-state solution is compatible with Israelis, but a one-state solution is not compatible with Zionism because Zionism as an ideology is based on the negation of the Palestinians. So you need Israeli forces that say, you know what, I can exist as Israeli within this land by living with the Palestinians. And you, have, you need Palestinian leadership who says, I can live with Israelis and how will I protect their rights while living with Palestinians? Right? But also, this is tied also with a regional strategy and international strategy. Like, how do we move from UN Partition Plan 181 to a new resolution that says one state for everybody? Uh, I think here the South African example maybe is the most helpful because the South African example was that we had an apartheid state. It did face international sanctions, but it was able to adapt from within once you know, the clerk and Mandela started talking, and once you created a new constitution, you did not dismantle South Africa, you, you just decolonized South Africa, you know? You did not get rid of the white South African, they were all part of what became the rainbow nation. Uh, so how can you do that in Palestine? I think you're having the ingredients, what is missing is the political strategy for that. And of course, the political strategy for that is difficult because definitely the Israeli state, the Zionist state, the Netanyahu, the right wing are definitely, that's the last thing they want because that means the end of Zionism as they understand it. So you need to find new forces in Israel that can see that a one state can be a way by which 
it can protect the life of Israelis and maybe even the power of Israelis like we saw in South Africa. Uh, but you need some leaders who are a little bit visionary and also that distinguish between Israel does not represent the Jewish people. Israel's responsibility is towards its citizens. And of course, Zionism is not interested in this version of itself. It's interested to say that Zionism and Jewishness is one and the same. Thank God we're seeing opposition to this argument, more louder voices, whether it is in the US or the UK, the Jewish voices for peace, uh, the young uh, Jewish people who say Israel does not speak for me. Okay. But I also think from an international legal point of view, Israel is responsible for its citizens. So Israel needs to adapt from within. And also you need to have Palestinian debate over this. And this is lacking, and this is what also created, also fragmented the Palestinian, not only territorially and socially, but also politically. You know, we did not have had the space to discuss and mobilize as Palestinians about what is our next project. We tried the two-state solution, it ended. We want a one-state solution. What does one democratic state in 2025 mean? It cannot mean the same thing as what it meant in 1971. How do you turn the slogan into a political project? I think many Palestinians have been involved and thinking about that. Uh, I think definitely the first step is to say that partition has not worked. Partition means segregation does not mean equality. And history will fault Israel for having destroyed the option of partition. But this is also intrinsic to Zionism. And what needs to happen now is how to separate Zionism from Israeli rights, from the rights of people who speak Hebrew, who identify Israelis, who live in, in Israel, in historic Palestine, and get them to feel that they can live with equality with the Palestinians, not at the expense of the Palestinians. On that point you make about the fact that the one-state solution is the thing that Netanyahu and, and the, the Israeli right, and, and we might say really all of existing Zionist thought... Yeah, from left to right, because, because this is the essence of Zionism. Zionism is based on the negation of the Palestinians, you know? Yeah. yeah. So as you say, it's opposed by the entirety of Zionism existing today. But I sort of apologize because, this again, this is a very sort of speculative question. But, you know, if we sort of imagine a scenario in which the Palestinians start to win some victories, suppose the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign starts to achieve some of their goals, suppose US and European support for Israel erodes, the US maybe begins to impose some conditionality on its diplomatic and military support for Israel. And, and the country becomes increasingly isolated rather in the way in which uh, South Africa did through the late 1980s. As you say, Israel is vastly more fearful of the one-state solution than they are of the two-state solution. And I wonder that, you know, in, in that circumstance, isn't it rather likely that if subjected to that serious and sustained pressure, the Israelis might suddenly change tack and, and basically say, well, you know, that, that two-state solution that we supported rhetorically while doing everything we can to undermine it on the ground, well, actually, we're serious now. We, we'll, we're prepared to withdraw the settlers. We'll grant the Palestinians control over the West Bank and Gaza. East Jerusalem could be the capital of the, of the state and that they would be moved to that position in order to ward off the really big threat as they see it, which is the, is the one-state solution. As I say, it's, it's speculative, but what, what's your take on that? Yeah, good luck. I mean, yeah, I'd love them to do that. I mean, that's something that Palestinians have accepted, but I do not see how somebody, anybody, has the capacity to move 500,000 settlers out of the West Bank, right? Mm. I mean, it's too late for that. You destroyed it. You know? mm. I mean, once you created that, you have to think of an alternative. And it is going to be very costly for the Israelis. This I understand. But I think it's very clear the Palestinians are going nowhere and nobody would take them. I mean, Israel's now solution in Gaza of this genocidal attack, this displacement that we are living another Nakba, the Nakba of my generation. I never thought I would see that. 1.4 million people displaced from their home in North Gaza to go to the south, most likely the north of Gaza, that will be split into two, the north under Israeli control, most likely, okay? So, yeah, you could repair it, you can put all the money you want, but the fact of the matter, you know what? Nobody wants to take the Palestinian refugees. The Palestinians have been there. I, I mean, Palestinians who are still in Gaza tell you, no, I'd rather die in my house than die on the street, than die again, again, living in tents. I mean, yeah, okay, maybe it, it will still get worse. I have no doubt it's gonna get worse. But I, I think everybody, including the U.S. administration and including Britain as well, are seeing the writing of the wall. This is not sustainable. Nobody wants more refugees. 
right? I mean, look at the civil war in, in, in Syria. It was catastrophic, horrendous. You know, they, Europe took one million refugees. And never again, they're saying, right? So nobody has appetite in the region or globally for more refugees. So what are you going to do? You know? Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the, we're going to hear more of for do say solution for a while. Good. I do definitely think, though, that we are at a juncture right now where boycott, divestment, and sanction is going to see an upbeat, and Israel is going to counter it in all measures, of course. But there's a role for the European and there's a role for the American to hold Israel accountable to international law. I mean, all the privileges that Israel has with Europe, these at least could be rescinded until it stops the war, you know? So, I mean, again, for the benefit of the European, for the benefit of Israel, and Israeli administrators have been telling this to Israel. I mean, if you remember Kerry in 2012, I mean, Kerry was the most outspoken. He said, you know, like, somebody who loves Israel, I'm telling you as a friend, if you don't accept a two-state solution, you are in a one-state reality. He said that in 2012, 11 years ago. So, yeah, the, the challenge today is precisely where will you find the forces within Israel and what will be the pressure put on Israel. And we're seeing, we're seeing now that Israel is losing the media war, maybe, or the, the young population. It's, it's beefing up and ratcheting up the anti-Semitism argument that any critique of Israel is a critique is, is a sign of anti-Semitism. This needs to be countered. In a sense, I think it's good that we're having wide open this discussion of anti-Semitism again because it shows, uh, it brings back the role of Europe in this conflict and the role of the West in general. So, I mean, these are challenging times and this is why they need, they need courageous people that say things as they are to the benefit of everybody. I mean, you have the political savvy people who want to score, you know, wins, but there is also a moral argument here because we are in an international system, after all, that said after the Second World War, never again, that upholds international law, that talks about equality, that rejected apartheid in South Africa. And I think now it's also a similar moment. Uh, how far are we from a, a further calamity? How, far, how close are we to a different version of a two-state solution, a confederation? But whatever solution you have, <laughs> the premise of any security for Israel is that the security is Israel cannot be done at the expense of the Palestinians. Israel thought it could have done that for the past 30 years, and it blew in its face. And it can destroy whatever Hamas it wants. I can give you many Israeli who wrote in 1948 already. There's a beautiful novel by Khirbat Khaza, by Yah Yitzhar, a very important Jewish Israeli writer, who wrote this no novel in 1949, talking about about an Israeli battalion that attacks a Palestinian village uh, to expel them from their home, right? And already in 1949, he has a very beautiful quote where, at the end of the novel where he says, like these Palestinians, they, they you know, how can we be doing that? We're expelling them, they're yeah, defiant. I see this little boy who's 13 years old who would not even give us, you know, is too proud to cry in front of our, our eyes. And what the hell are we creating? We're creating a new exile. He wrote that in 1949. 20 years later, what did you have? The PLO. 20 years later, after the PLO, what did you have? The PLO accepts Israel. 30 years after the 1967 war, you have 25 years, you have the Oslo peace process. And 30 years after that, you have Hamas and this atrocious attack. So what does this tell you? That Palestinians are going nowhere. Israelis are going nowhere. The only solution is upholding the humanity of everybody, not the rights of one over the others. And I do believe that human, humanity and human beings are quite intelligent to figure that out in a better way than what we had for the past 30 years. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. £5 patrons get access to PTO Extra Bonus episodes of the show, usually two per month, including listeners' questions episodes, where you can hear recent guests respond to comments and questions sent in by PTO supporters. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up.
The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.